Yeah, but so you have to say, like, welcome to tell me how I'm wrong. I did it again! Welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, the internet's favorite podcast about why Sophie and I are wrong. Uh, I'm Amos, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Sophie, the other one who can't remember the name of the show. Yeah, Sophie, what's our show called? Apparently it's called Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, not Mm. Tell Me How I'm Wrong, which, I mean, that would be a different kind of show. Different show. Tell Me Uh, How I'm Wrong. Tell Me That I'm Wrong. One way that you're wrong is with the name of the show and what you call it. Mm -hmm. That is one way. Um. Yeah. So yeah. this is a show where the two of us talk about things. You know, usually one of us will start it off with a, a statement, um, uh, about something that the other person knows more about, and then that second person will tell the first one why they're wrong. Yeah. Uh, then we do it all over again, but with roles reversed. So Today, we're good time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's jolly. You can you can see why it's a good show. You know, just by that description. Just, I mean, yeah, the premise itself. Yep. Is great. Yep, it's a real, no, uh, real grab you sort of premise. Barn burner. Two people on the internet talking about stuff. Yelling about why the other one is wrong. It's unusual. <laughs> we are wrong on the internet. Mm. Uh, hey, this is uh, season three, episode three. Secret, Secret ingredients. ingredients. Great title. Thank you, Sophie. You're welcome. Um, and I don't think we've got any business before we get started. I don't think so. Oh, maybe we want to announce our homework. So if people yeah, want to. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah. So I have assigned for, we're, we're doing another homework episode this season. I have assigned. And it's Sophie. books this time. It's yeah, books. Yeah, we got to read. There's reading with our eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assigned Sophie a bunch of like short so stories. Like so many. Well, novellas yeah some I mean, of them are short so- they're long some are short stories some are novellas i you know i, I could have cut that back some that's okay i'm going through it i'm doing okay it. uh stuff by hp lovecraft so we've got uh shadow over Innsmouth, dunwich horror uh at the mountains of madness call of cthulhu whisper in darkness whisper in darkness is that is that it is i that think all that's no there okay. might be one more is there one more there might be but i can't remember Okay, but I mean, you know, if, if if you read those, you'll be you'll be in good shape. Um, if you read really any H.P. Lovecraft, you'll know because it's all the same. <laughs> it's sort of starting to feel repetitive. It's like, oh, and now we'll have the same horrible things happen, but in the Arctic. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't wait for that episode. <laughs> uh, Sophie, what did you tell me to read? I told you to read Salman Rushdie's book called. I have it right here. Yeah, could you bring it by? No, I got it out from my library. Shoot. Okay. Um, you know what? But I'm not going to remember what it's called, and I can't actually see it from here. But it's a no- some number of days, months, and other months. Some book by Salman Rushdie. Hang on with... a second. I'll read you the title. It's just going to be a second while I extricate myself. It's called Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, which is um, the equivalent of 1,001 Nights. Oh, like the Arabian Nights. Yeah, like tales from, like, Scheherazade. Yep. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited for you to read it and tell me what you think. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Cool. We haven't done that yet. Right. 
So, so you all should read those too, so that you can follow along with our conversation, which will yeah. be either next episode or the one after. Yeah, and inter- I think it's going to be an interesting one because unlike last time when we we kind of both picked things we really liked and hoped yep. the other person liked. Although Amos, you had more of an interesting. I think your approach was a little better because you were like, "I want to know if this is ac- this thing that I like is actually good." Right. So I, I did. Like I kind of did have similar. Yeah, I think we have like so like a like more of that this time of like. Let's like help me figure out what to do with this piece of yep. literature. Right. So I think it's going to be really, really good. I'm really excited. Yeah, and I think I think that now that I think about it, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to get too much into this conversation, but I, I think I think there's a lot of um, sort of topical resonance with a discussion about H.P. Lovecraft in the like the uh, the way we deal with um, artists who are um, personally hashtag problematic. <laughs> okay. Um yeah. Yeah. So we you know we one thing that we always strive for here at um here at Tell Me Why I'm Wrong is uh to be very topical. Yeah. Although it tell me how my how I'm wrong was a little more lax. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so let's uh let's get started with the show. Yes. What are those secret ingredients? What are they? Um <clears throat> Hold on a sec. S- they are translation yeah. and f- nutrition science. Just so yeah, there we go. That's that's what we're talking about. So let's talk about translation. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure where I want to go with this, but I, I bet we'll find something interesting to talk about here. Um, so, so heartening. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think some of our best conversations start off that way. Maybe. Uh, so so one thing I heard I, I don't remember where, but someone someone told me this is that that. One way of defining poetry is it's what can't be translated or what gets lost in translation right between different languages so um so I guess for starters you know as as a poet who's done some translation i'm I'm just curious what you think about that idea uh, yeah and w- and whether it tells us anything interesting about poetry or translation um and and I want to talk about the value of translation in general um oh good. Yeah, because when it comes to literature, literature and poetry, you know, as opposed from like I don't know, translating technical manuals or something, um, translations have to be creative works in their own rights. Uh, if you just try to translate the quote unquote literal meaning of the words, whatever that is, uh, you're not actually recreating the experience of reading the work in the original language in any way. Um, so, so you need to you know, translators need to sort of put their own artistry into the work. So, so to what extent are we even capable of encountering works in translation, like, like the original work in, tra- in translation? People sometimes ask me which translation of Homer they should read. And uh, my sort of stock answer has been uh, Fagel's. It's a, it's a very readable translation and it moves very quickly. Uh, but his stuff is not very accurate. He just, um, he just, I mean, he kind of makes stuff up. <laughs> like he'll just sort of like mm. add, add clarifying statements or, um, or just like extend something a little bit. And, uh, and that makes some classicists or, or, you know, people who read Greek really annoyed, uh, with, you know, maybe some reason, but the reason, the reason I recommend them anyway is because, I just I don't think translation is the place to be doing close readings anyway. And if you really like if you really care about doing a close reading of Homer, you you just need to learn Greek and you're never going to get there with any translation. So 
read one that you know has some sense of movement and gives you some sense of of the the sort of velocity of homer and um yeah don't worry too much about the the um strict accuracy um but i don't know maybe that's wrong-headed um so so when you do translations of poetry poetry are you are you are you wasting your time there (laughs) and how do you think about how do you think about translating or capturing things like you know rhythm and alliteration and rhyme uh, sort of as a separate question are you are you ever tempted to make a poem you're translating better than it is in the original like how or or maybe maybe a better way to ask that is like like how do you translate a media like as a good poet how do you translate a mediocre poem um it's a really nice question although um like it's kind of subjective, right? Like it's sort of dependent sure. on like whether I am a good poet or not. Sure, but but like uh, you know, maybe another way to look at it is is uh, is just like you have your own aesthetic judgment as a poet that you necessarily need to use when you're doing translation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you know, there may be a line in a poem that just doesn't work for you, and then mm-hmm. like, do you try to translate it in a way that doesn't work for you? I mean, that seems hard. But, um, and then, yeah, so, so, so those are my questions and, and I'm rather than saying, tell me why I'm wrong. Cause I don't really have a thesis here. I'm going to say, tell me why my questions are wrong headed. Interesting. Well, I wrote down a lot of these questions I have. Um, well, I won't, I get, I guess I have like poetry. Is it what, what gets lost in translation? Mm-hmm. Literary translation goes beyond the literal is translation possible. And do you, did you, are you tempted to make poems better? So interesting. I have so many thoughts about this. Um, okay. And let me let me just just before you you start with that, let me just say that one of the things that I'm interested in, mm-hmm. uh, w- one of the reasons why I find translation really interesting and why I suggested this topic, despite not really having any kind of thesis, is that mm-hmm. I actually think that tr- the way you think about translation says a lot about the way you think about what language is and how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always interested in how mm-hmm, how people mm-hmm. think about, and maybe I should have made that my my thesis statement here. But I I just I think that yeah, the way people think about language just says a lot about, or the the way that people think about translation says a lot about the way they think about language and and how language functions. So that's really interesting. I don't have as much on that, but maybe we'll get there. Yeah, um, maybe first not. I I you know this sort of like um little axiom that like poetry is get what gets lost in translation. I just like I just don't. I just don't really find anything mm. useful there. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's pat and it's, it's also, it's sort of like, you know, you throw up your hands because like you can never do it. And um, of course we all do. Also every act of reading a poem in some ways is an act of like very broadly construed translation because, you know, maybe it's an analysis interpretation, but you are sort of like taking meaning out of something that ne- like out of a vessel that necessarily holds meaning in a complicated way if that isn't too flowery to be understood, but like, you know, all reading of poems is sort of about interpretation. And so um, you're always making a translation. Sometimes I even say that to my students about historical texts, you know, like, you know, they're all in English because that's how I, you know, that's kind of university I teach at. Um, Mm -hmm. They may not have been in English originally, or they may have been. And I, you know, will read and we'll sometimes say like somebody, somebody do a translation here. And what I really mean is, you know, give us a pricey summary, but like, we're always sort of doing that. Like, carrying meaning from like one form into another so yeah i don't really and and i also think i mean you're right at some level about like 
look, if you want to really encounter this poem, you need to go to the original. But I feel like that's just really like hard hearted in a way. I mean, not, not, not that you're being hard hearted, but if that's what we really are going to say about works of literature and works of art, like, well, you just can't, you're just like never going to access it. If you don't like put the study in, I just, I feel like translators are bigger, like are more bigger hearted than that. It's like, it's a, I'm going to make this accessible to you. And, and yeah, things might get lost along the way, but like, it's a gift, you know, like you're like, this thing is really good and more people should be able to have access to it. And I'm going to do my very best to make that possible for them. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, maybe one way to put it is like, like this, this work that I'm doing here is going to, it's going to, it's going to show you something of, of the original work and it's, it's not going to get everything, but it's going to show you something of it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think some of it depends too on like how close the two languages are to one another. I mean, sure. certainly like I've tried, I've tried my hand at translating like Rilke, for example, and it's just, it's so impossible. I mean, I, I felt it to be really impossible because there's meter and rhyme and the images are so layered and so complex and so beautiful that you're just like going to fail. But like, I've also translated much um, more kind of clear, plain spoken poets in German. And so like sometimes German that's clean, you know, that's like kind of um, plain comes into English quite easily and you're just yeah, like sure. okay like here we just that like pop sense. this over and you hope it still sounds good i mean that's right. like that's the other so quality is the other thing you're asking about and and i actually do have a rule for myself about that which is my first duty as a translator first of all i also want to say like translation for me anyway is like such a big pleasure that like i would never sort of i don't want to i don't want to be like oh it's just like a lost cause like it's never gonna work like this is just stupid because like it's so fun and like it makes me feel so good to do it that I don't know. It just it's sort of like saying, um, like you're never gonna capture what it was like for Bach to play a, like a Bach sonata. So you might as well not try. But like if you're mm-hmm. if you like to play the violin or something, you know, even if you're not the best musician in the world, it's not like you shouldn't do it. It's like still pleasurable to do it, and the people mm-hmm. hearing it find it pleasurable too. So I sure, guess I'm right. sort of thinking of it that way. Um, but I always think like. Not accuracy, not meaning, not form. The first duty I have is like, if the poet is good, if the poem is good, is to make the poem good in the target language. Mm-hmm. So poems that are like, if if you've done a really accurate sort of word for word translation that just like doesn't doesn't sing, doesn't have any sort of like shine to it, then it's not a good translation. If the original poem was any good at all, right. So, um, like I was translating at one point and there was a poem that I thought was really good, but it was really plain and it was sort of hard to get it back. It was hard to get like any of the pathos of it into Mm. English. And there's a sound, it's sort of like almost like a image that's latent in the sound of a word. And I brought that forward and that, that image is not in the poem, but the sound is in the poem and it kicked the poem up a notch so that it actually felt like a poem right and that was like a bold move to do but i i thought it was right because otherwise the poem was really it was like very slack on the page and it's it's a poem about um a friend of the poet who's died and so it's like just cheesy and not any good and so it needed to it needed to be better and so this is how i made it better and you know you could like you could fight with me about that i guess but especially since the poet hasn't been translated a lot it was sort of like well you want to fight me, make your own translation, but like, there's nothing yet. Like this is it. So yeah. Right. Right. Like there's, um, how to put that. I don't know. I had a thought and then it went away. Yeah. But, know. but there's, yeah, you've got to make a choice there. Yeah. Between accuracy and making a good poem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't like make something up wholesale, but if I can bring something out a little further, because other things have receded in, in the translation, you mm-hmm. know, like, so yeah. Um, just as a side note, I've looked at, and, um, uh, Emily Wilson's new translation of Odyssey, sure. which is getting like huge, pr- like people are loving it. And people I, are all over about it, yeah. I really like it. Have, I think it's really it? good. I'm reading it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah. Like, as we said before, this is Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, and we're always very topical, and translation has been in the news because Mm -hmm. of this Emily Wilson translation of The Odyssey. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've listened to a couple interviews with her. Or I listen, I think I listened to one Mm -hmm. and read one or two others. And, and she seems very thoughtful about, about translation and has interesting things to say about it. Super interesting things to say. And I I mean, one of the things that she was talking about that I, I thought was interesting is, well, sort of two, two things. One is, is in that first, the first line of the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about a straying husband. (laughs) <laughs> right, right right she says like i could have translated it tell me about a straying husband yeah. but i didn't it's, it's polytropos uh which is gets translated in lots of different ways and and you know one of the articles i think I read, she she eventually this, ends like, this with um, complicated man complicated yeah you know uh sometimes it gets translated as wily uh twist and t- man of, man twists of twists and, and turns, turns. Yeah. yeah but it's you know her her point is that it's it's tough to um you know, polytropos is it's sort of like many, many turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to capture the ambiguity of that in in English. But if you describe someone as complicated, that sort of, yeah, captures something, even though it's not, you know, literally the same thing. But if, you know, calling mm-hmm. him man of many turns doesn't make a lot of sense in English. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about it. And, you know, some of the hype has been that, um, and again, I, I don't read Greek, so I can't tell you, but. That it's both very accurate and also very close stylistically. Like mm-hmm. they're sort of like it, it reproduces well, some of that. This is great. This I'm glad you said that because this is this is I think a a, a point of contention among translators and poets of Greek. And I'm, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. So is this about the meter? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so Homer, uh, the 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 Iliad and the Odyssey are written in a very very strict hexameter. Hexameter. Meter. So each line has um, six beats or six six feet. They're called. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a metrical unit, and each foot starts with a long syllable. So the, it's it's uh, it's either long, short, short, or long, long. There uh, are they trochees. Is that what it is? That sounds right. Yeah, and I, so you can look at any any line of the Iliad and. Um, and it will follow that pattern. Most of them then end with the last two feet being long, short, short, long, long. Um, so th- they all end with this da, 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 sort of at the end. Um, and that's part of what gives it, gives Homer this, um, this rhythm, because the, the end of the line kind of pulls you into the next line um, in this really cool in, uh, way. And then there's, there's um, every now and then you'll have a line that ends on... Um, just on on uh longs or or you'll have a line that's like all all longs and that gives it this very sort of like stately feel anyway right. and if you're if you're like in the in the poetry zone that's stress is an unstressed so it's not 
No, 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 no. This is, this is a, a misconception. Greek Greek meter it had nothing to do with stress. There was no in in Homeric Greek. There was no stress, or we we don't know anything about the stress accent. Oh, interesting. It's it's um, length. It's 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 all about of length. what of uh, word. Yeah, of the of the vowel sound, or or, oh, okay. or it's not just the vowel sound, but the um, yeah, just the length length of the syllable. Um, so like there are long and short vowels. Like you have like an e that's a short iota and you could have e that's a long iota okay okay um so it's it's all about the length not the not the the meter and then the the accent was actually a, a pitch accent not a um not oh, a stress I didn't accent know that. that's really yeah. interesting yep and then sometime probably around you know like like around the the turn of the bce to ce somewhere around there maybe a little before it, the the um pitch accent turned into a stress accent oh that's so interesting probably no as like more foreign speakers were like learning greek as it became like a and it's like hard to do a tonal exactly language. like for people who aren't yeah. used to tone tonal yeah. accents yeah yeah, yeah blah, yeah blah blah so anyway okay. so the, the point is it's it's a it's a hexameter verse it's got this sort of sense of momentum and movement so wilson has translated the the odyssey into hexameter verse as did uh richmond Lattimore. his his Wait, i don't think that's right i think she does i think it's iambic she, pentameter. oh you're right you're right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. sorry yep and yep. she has like a pretty good justification she did iambic pentameter it. richmond yeah. Lattimore did hexameter yeah um and there's a sort of a little bit of um of contention there where some yeah, people say sure. like, like well how can you how can you translate uh hexameter into pentameter so pentameter that's you know that's like your your shakespeare's your marlowe's um where you've got five feet each one with a sort of stressed and unstressed right Uh, and it's the it's the um meter that we speak in spontaneously most often in english yeah right it's it's very natural for english first whereas hexameter is, is pretty unnatural in english right and it's weird for our ear too yep yep we don't always like hear it the way that we hear it's interesting because like pentameter we both it it both like sounds good and we notice it but then it also kind of like goes below the surface so it's not like annoying right right yeah whereas hexameter is in english is going to come across as affected a little stilted yeah yeah and then fagels kind of goes a third way and he goes goes kind of free verse with lines of varying metrical quantities um so Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, some purists will say like, you know, you're, you're really missing it if you, if you turn a hexameter into a pentameter, not just because it's, it's not the same, but also because just you end up with a much shorter line, um, which just affects the, the feel. Um, and it, yeah, you, you sort of lose the ability to have like multiple ideas in the same line in the same way. Because mm-hmm. you just don't have as much room for it. Um, anyway, so I think that's interesting. And then I, I know Wilson criticized Fagels for going with the free verse version because because one of the defining things of Homer is the strictness of the meter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's really like an, an iron law. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, to me, that's art, and like I, I think that's those are really interesting arguments, and I think all arguments that like most arguments that translators make with each other are pretty interesting and tell you something about the translator and the yeah, work. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. But I don't think those particular arguments, like that you've just kind of re- reiterated mm-hmm. for us, like really say anything about um, the audience. <laughs> like, like, uh, like the the idea is that like English speakers want to experience the Odyssey and they want to have the best 
possible experience. And obviously I haven't qualified what or quantified what best means. Yeah, right. But like if you're a translator, like you want to give them that and you want to give them the and that has to mean two things. It has to mean something about the the original language and something about the target language. And so like just being like, well, this is you're so stupid if you don't like reproduce this thing that works really well in Greek. Like, well you have to think about what it's gonna feel like to the ear or to the eye because that's the other thing with the odyssey is like which is very different from anything i've ever translated is that you know it starts out right if i'm not wrong about this as an oral performance mm-hmm. but most people reading it today are reading it right like very rarely Definitely. i think are people just sitting around i mean they should if you have a copy of the odyssey around or the iliad but especially the the new odyssey by emily wilson do read it out loud because it, it sounds good it really does mm-hmm. it's fun to read and it sounds good and it, you want to keep reading it you know you, you it sort of gives you that it pulls you along but that's not probably what most people are doing and so not only have she ha, does she have to translate it from one language to another and from like one time period into another she also has to translate it in some ways and from a, one medium into another and, and the medium is it's actually even even more different because th- probably in uh, sort of like original performance. Probably they were actually sung, not right, sure. not not spoken. Yeah, um, right. And there's even some evidence that the that the melody that was being sung sort of followed the uh, pitches of the accents. That's really interesting. I was going to say that 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 sounds like something maybe that would happen. Yep, yep. So there would have been like a, a accompaniment on a on like a um I forget what they're called. Basically like a lyre sort of thing. Yeah, right. Um. And yeah, in the in the line all would have been, yeah, would have been sung, uh, which you know some people also there there are a few places in Homer where there's like, um, this is what what they have they have what they call metrical lengthening, where there's a um a short vowel in a spot that should have a long vowel, and there's like lots of like arcane rules for explaining why. Or, or a short syllable where there should be a long syllable where, where even if there's a, there's all these rules explaining why, even if there's a, a short vowel, the syllable still counts as long. Like if you've got double consonants or, you know, there's all, all these little things. And then sometimes they, they just sort of throw up their hands and they're like, uh, this is metrical lengthening where they're basically like, who's we, they in this, in this the sentence? People who study, uh, Oh, I see. You know, okay. Greek, right. Experts. Poetics. Yeah. Yeah. They say, it's metrical lengthening, which is best I can tell basically means it just trust us. It counts as long. We're not sure why, um, because it, it has to, in order to fit the meter. Right. Um, but you know, I've, I've seen people argue that that's because it was sung, not, Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. spoken and and so there's like room for things like just sort of arbitrary lengthening a uh so a so, so within but, this kind of but anyway oh yeah just 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 that just to get it like the the all the different levels of translation happening here yeah for sure and i mean i guess the thing i would say is like the question is translation possible becomes like more piquant <laughs> the more of those layers you have right yeah. like but and I can understand why you would say, like, why you would ask that question, because asking the question implies that the answer may be no. But people still want the Iliad. They still want the Odyssey. I mean, we still want it. And so we should have it. You know, I mean, I just feel very sort of, like, but I, expansive I guess, about this. You know? I guess, like, like, should, <laughs> like, maybe they should have it. But that Give the people what they want. That doesn't mean they get it. You know what I mean? Sure. It means well, that they get, like, they get this, this work in English that bears many strong resemblances to the Iliad or the Odyssey. Um, I don't know. I, I, I again. I don't. I don't have a strong. I, I don't feel like I have a strong opinion on that. But I think it's worth. I guess maybe it's something that I 
I have a certain amount of anxiety about. Yeah, why? Um, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, right. Uh, I guess because for me, um, I don't know how to put this. You know, as as someone who's interested in Greek and Greek language and Greek literature, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've spent a fair bit of time reading Homer in Greek. Uh, you know, I think... And I've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of that. Sure. There's there's also a level where I'm just sort of like frustrated by my own um, inability to read fluently. Well, what's so interesting about that is like, so I was going to say something which is like, you just, you know, I think as a translator, you 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 have to see yourself as moving between and and like you just can't be too loyal to the original which is not to say you don't want to be as accurate as possible but like it seems like i think you know you're so kind of enamored of the whole world of 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 greece of ancient greece and all and I'm, this is not a bad thing but like uh the question it, it, you know for you it's like i want to get as close as possible as i can get to that world and that means learning the language and studying all there is to study and try to be immersed but for the audience that you're translating for, that may not be their motive at all. Sure. And so you want to be loyal to this world and to to the English language as well, right? Like you have – think the thing about being translator is like you feel like you're a door that's sort of like on a hinge that like sways back and forth. And so like you, you want to have a loyalty to the target language too. Mm-hmm. And I think – Yeah, right. You know, Otherwise you end right? up with, with really, really unnatural – or why do it at all? You know, like this, this is where you're like, well, just learn Russian then, you know? But I, I mean, I, you know that I, I teach, I teach about the Soviet Union mm-hmm. um, in Russia, even though I don't, it's not a research field for me, which is to say, I don't, I don't research in those on, I sort of do a little bit because the people that I study go back and forth between these things, but um, I don't read Russian and I probably never will. Um, I think it's but a, I have a to be one. able, yeah, it's a toughie. I have to be able to teach it and I want to be able to understand it and learn um, you know, learn as much as I can about, about Russian history and the history of the Soviet Union. And so I'm just depending on my translators and I have to trust them and I have to trust them and I have to, I have to understand what I can as much as I can so that then I can sort of quote unquote translate all this for my students. I don't think it's fair to say to my students, like, you can't have a class on the Soviet Union unless you learn Russian. Sure. Yeah. Like yeah, that's yeah. just like mean, you know, no, and no, it's no, not no. going to happen. <laughs> Right, and and that's obviously not true. Like you can learn a great deal about the Soviet Union without learning Russian. And you could Russian. say, I mean, you can say, like, look, this this vital word has been mistranslated, and therefore we've all misunderstood this thing for years and years. And that's and that's totally fine. Like we can have those revelations, and they're interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I mean, going back to your question about sort of like literal, right, like technical translation versus literary translation. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of like uh, like worry and anxiety you can have, but. I mean, I, I guess for me, like just going back to like the original, my, it's so fun. I mean, I, I have a lot of, I, I do, it's like pleasurable. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm can not you, like, Can you talk about like, about like it. what the nature of that pleasure is? Well, I mean, you like, like what's fun love, about it? If you love words, then it's really fun to find the, the, the right word to, to replace another word, like from one language to another. And especially this is where I think it's interesting. Like, you're frustrated with your lack of fluency, but for me, translating is the place where I feel the most fluent because I'm not so fluent all the time in like the languages I work in. And, but when I'm translating German, that's the closest I feel to being fluent, even though I'm working in English at the same time, like I'm sort of flimming, fl- flicking back and forth instead of sort of like 
what people say is like to achieve fluency, like stay away from your original, stay away from your um, native language, like your first language. Just mm-hmm. like don't think in it, don't work in it, don't speak it, like immerse yourself, blah, blah. But for me, like I love feeling like I understand both languages and I can kind of hold them at the same time. Well, I guess that's um, the difference between like developing fluency and being a good translator because a good translator, you you don't just – Right, like if you if you want to become fluent in a language, right, that means you need to be able to like to not be translating when you right. speak or understand or read it. You need to just right. be operating in the target language without translating. And if you're translating in your head, then you're not really you're fluent. Not really yet. fluent. Yeah. But as a translator, you like, do need to be able to move back and forth. And, and yeah. And I think it helps yeah. to be as fluent as possible, right? Like it's not like you become fluent Maybe. and then you lose the ability yeah. to translate. Um but I think the other thing, I mean, that was interesting, but now I forgot. Well, I said a lot of interesting things. You did. Yeah. It's a lot true, of now interesting I forgot stuff. everything I was going to say. Translation. Um, uh, yeah, no, you can't remember either. I mean, I just don't know what you. Yeah, I don't know what I was going to say. Reaching for. Um, no, but it's it's fun. I mean, it feels like it feels like really getting to know, say, a poem, mm-hmm. really getting to know it in its original. And then trying to reconstruct it in in this other language that I also love, you know, and it's it's fun and you learn something about the poem, you know, and in some ways it is an interpretation. You're like, okay, like I'm going to pull out this thing and I'm going to make this thing the central. Um, Like if there's a several layers of meaning, you might sort of say like, okay, I'm picking up this uppermost one and the others are going to have to, you know, not be there or there, you know, and it's so fun. I mean, it's just like, you get to make lots of decisions. Mm -hmm. You get to like weigh different options. You get to use your thesaurus. I love to use my thesaurus. (laughs) It's so fun. I really like it. You get to pull things in and out. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like you're writing this poem. Right. Like you get to feel what it feels to write. I mean, I don't know if that's how the the poet literally felt but it's like i'm writing it's sort of like you know whatever who is it that copies out all the poems and it's like writing them but it sort of is that you're rewriting them um i was gonna say i mean i think that like there's some translators who are really good poets and all of the poems that they translate are really good poems but they all like ws merwin like all ws merwin translations to my ear sound like ws merwin which is not a bad mad bad thing because i think that he's a really good poet but but does it actually does that mean it actually sounds like mandelstam i I don't know i'm not sure yeah you start to get worried it made me like mandelstam a lot when i read the merwin translations i was like this is really great but then i was like but is it just merwin i don't know but then i went and read other versions other translations of the same poems i was like "Hmm, okay i'm getting i'm zeroing in on what is mandelstam and that's yeah yeah no that does sound fun it is it's really fun Cool. Yeah. Uh, Does that answer any of your questions? I mean, I mean, obviously, I think I think translation is possible. I think like, you know, poetry doesn't have to get lost in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Does yeah. That no. Get I you think closer. I, I think what's that? Does that get you closer? Totally. I think that I think that's all. Yeah, I think that's all good stuff. I think Let's, you shouldn't be so anxious about the Iliad. Maybe not. Yeah. Don't be too precious about it. You know, kill your darling. Yeah. Oh man. You want to, so so. Uh, I hate that phrase though. By the way. Really. I think it's just, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, another that's for another day <laughs> new topic uh a, a little about while back when i was sort of getting back into reading greek after taking you know several years off from it i i found this uh an internet community of um mostly autodidacts uh mm. teaching themselves greek oh man oh yeah how interesting super interesting yeah. it's this weird little weird little internet corner which is one of those you know, things that the internet specializes in 
Um, and so, some of them are True. very, very precious, um, which oh, I think is yeah. why they are autodidacts instead of, you know, actually like studying someplace else. Cause they, they, um, they're like so hung up on, on like, their... like their imagined version of, of mm. accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, interesting stuff. And, and, you know, I think some of, some of it, it's, it's kind of admirable just like the, the discipline that these people have to like, you know, as oh, yeah. adults well, out of nowhere to decide they're going to learn yeah. ancient Greek and to like pick up a book, yeah. start, you know, a, 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 a textbook or something and start reading and just go to the internet for help when they get stuck on something. Um, anyway, super admirable. Let's, uh, let's move on to our second topic. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it's my turn to talk about, um, nutritional science. Yeah. What yeah. do you have to say about that? All right. Well, so, I mean, we've had quite a few conversations um, where you've mentioned that you think a lot of nutrition science is pretty bogus, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, unscientific. I S1E1 and, started with. with yeah. Unscientific, uh, inconclusive. And so, uh, but you obviously pay attention to some of it. Witness the change in your eating habits from what you used to call Nutrislop TM. <laughs> legumes, starches, and veggies cooked into a pulp to dinosaur steaks washed down with heavy cream. Mm. Listeners, this is literally true. I don't eat I, very much heavy cream anymore. I in the oh so this is good. I have had little, very little reason to pay attention to nutrition science because I naively ate when I was hungry, stopped eating when I was full, and generally consumed a balance of like most types of food in combinations that I figured were generally tasty and somewhat ethical. Um, but recently, I've been dealing with some health issues, which it's recommended to treat with both medication and diet. Um, so I started changing what I eat according to what doctors and scientists say. And I have to say, it's helped immensely. It's like really worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but while it's helped immensely, the explanations for why it helps are really unsatisfying and even potentially like nonsensical. Mm. So my questions are, am I just dumb? Does food make no sense? Does no one understand it? Yeah. Does the emperor have no clothes? Is it all just intuitive after all? No. Am I wrong? If so, tell me why. Man. Okay. So I'm... Um, uh... <laughs> Uh, I know. Right. Okay. So, so just to back up a little bit, you know, why I think nutritional science is wrong. It's, I mean, obviously it's not all wrong, but I think it goes wrong in a few specific ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And just speaking real broadly, I think one of them is an over-reliance on epidemiology. So that's, you know, where you- The study of disease? Not just the study of disease, but epidemics. But, yeah, the, well, the study of disease at like the population level. Okay, right, right. Where you're where you're looking at broad groups of people, and you say like, okay, people who have characteristic X are more likely to suffer from disease Y. Okay, right. and and they always say like, well, correlation doesn't equal causation, right. but X clearly causes Y. Right, right. right. So so there's a lot yeah. of um. Well, we of, don't seem to like really understand that that like leap from okay, correlation doesn't cause uh, isn't causation, but also like. People, populations that eat like a lot of sugar also have a high incidence of diabetes, even though the individuals don't necessarily, it doesn't yeah, like well, match right. up, I right? Mean, so, so, I mean, one way to put it would be that correlation isn't causality, but it's, it's correlated with it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, like, but now you like use the same word and I know, like, I know, uh, right. It's okay. So, hard so, so correlation, it's not the same thing as causality, but like it usually may, sometimes it sh- often it shows that there's something there. But so, yeah. I, you know, one thing that I think happened is, is there was a big victory for modern epidemiology in the, I don't know, late fifties, early sixties. 
where they were able to show pretty conclusively that smoking causes smoking lung cancer. Smoking kills you, yeah. And and um and then from Although that they, smoking isn't food. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's yeah. in terms it's of a, like the science a, is very similar. Yeah. You know, and at, it's a at habit. the epidemiological level. Right. It's a lifestyle choice and they were able right. to and and then sort of like they moved on to other things, but it but the reason why smoking was the first big win is because the um size of the effect is enormous. Like people What does that mean? Um, like people who smoke cigarettes are something like 20 times more likely to get lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And then you can move on to like, okay, people who eat red meat are more likely to get heart disease, but they're like, like 30% more likely maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I'm, I'm making up these numbers, but they're, I think they're sort of like Mm -hmm. at the order, Mm -hmm. order of magnitude level. Right. So, so. Mm -hmm. uh, Right. Can I, can I just. So I say that that relationship between smoking and lung cancer is. You know, methodologically, it's established in the same way, but it's much mm-hmm. more impressive than mm-hmm. the relationship between uh, eating red meat and um, and heart disease, and and mm-hmm. much more likely to show a real relationship instead of something spurious. Go. I was just gonna say, I was just gonna use another example, which uh, our a friend who um who is a cancer researcher has used with me, which is sort of like, yes, if you li- live on a like a nuclear waste site like you're very likely to get cancer, but almost nothing else that we sort of like can pinpoint is as obvious. Right. Right. You're talking about very small relationships and you know, the, the, the word for that is, is relative risk. Like what's, Mm -hmm. what's the, um, you know, when you can say that like, okay, again, like eating red meat every day or or five times a week makes you 30% more likely to get heart disease. That would be a, you know, 30% relative risk. Uh, and then that would be compared to like absolute risk would be like, you know, lifetime you have a, you know, 25% chance of uh, getting heart disease. So, you know, 30% greater than 25% starts it also like that makes it look a little less impressive. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So, okay, so go back to this sort of, I understand the over-reliance on epidemiology, yeah. but I think like part of where my confusion comes in is like, it, you know, is obviously very personal, but having... Having had this experience, I've now talked to a lot of people who have had similar, which is like, it doesn't make any sense why this helps, but it really seems to. But then you're sort of like, but is it just quackery? Like, what about all the people drinking apple cider vinegar all the time and they're not like cured of, um, I don't know, whatever they have. So, So I, you know, I'm not sure quite how to answer the part about making sense because I don't know what the. I forget exactly what the intervention was and. Right. But, but I could say that like. Uh, you know, it sort of goes back to the same question because the issue is when you're dealing with relatively small changes in relative risk or or relatively small effects that sort of accrue over time or right. or become more powerful when combined with other things, it just makes it really hard to tell what's going on. Yeah, totally. Um, and I should say, I think I think there have been some. I I think sort of the mainstream medical community has gotten better about this over the last few years. Like five years ago, I think, you know, if you looked at like, actually, we should check this in a real time, real time follow up. I'm going to look at what the American Diabetes Association. um, Okay, but first tell me what the problem was from five years ago. Well, so like I say, like you could, you'd look at the American Diabetes Association, like their recommended diet, and it wouldn't say anything about low sugar. 
it would be yeah. all like, oh, you, you know, you need to eat a low fat diet and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, right. okay, that's cool. And, you know, there may be some reason to do that. But um, it's all about blood sugar. So, like, doesn't sugar have some? Wouldn't sugar have something to do with it? Maybe, presumably, yes. right? <laughs> Although Maybe. I understand, I understand that like all food becomes sugar when you've digested it. No, no. Okay, not all <laughs> no. food becomes sugar, nope. right? I mean, isn't that the point? Nope. No, no. Okay, nope. not the point. Nope. See, uh, I don't know anything. I don't yeah. know anything because when I didn't have any problems, I was completely naive, innocent, and intuitive, and I'd be like, I feel like I need some veggies. You know, like I need some leafy greens. I just like feel like I do, and then I would eat them, and I would feel good. Or yeah. like, oh, I really just feel like I need some protein today, and I like eat so protein, that's you know that's great. But that's like completely bonkers. I mean, who's to say like I I'm not like mm, I just like feel like I need some human flesh today. I mean, I, there, there's no reason that this would be accurate. I'm sort of just like. The wool has fallen from my eyes. Or well, the so here's, or whatever, I mean, right? I mean, we're getting into the weeds here a little bit. I would say, well, no, because people like there's the there's the weird health food people who are like, you your body knows what it needs. Like if you're if you're eating lots of like salty foods, like if you're eating so much so potato chips, it's probably because you need salt, you know. And like, there's no reason for that to be true. So I think I think there's some reason for it to be true. So I, I would put it this way: in a, in a perfect world. Let's let's say let's not a perfect world. Let's say in in a in a world in in our. How to, I'm I'm trying to think of, of oh, a way man. to say this that's not going to sound weird, but like basically in <laughs> in our evolutionary context, that it's probably true. Like like in in a hunter gatherer society with access to like the foods that hunter gatherers have access to mm-hmm. um in a lifetime of eating those foods like yeah probably cravings are a pretty good guide to what a body actually needs um my my historian like uh like your romanticizing the past alarm has gone off but that's so, okay but I, you know I don't, I don't mean to i mean i'm sure there are lots of bad things about hunter gatherer societies and a lot of ways no, that no, can go I, wrong but but, uh, but no the, no it's not point, about that the point is that like like they're when much more egalitarian. Sure, but like like when you have limited access to sugar, for instance, right, a, sure. a craving for sugar is a could be a really useful signal that like okay, like this fruit which is you know has way less sugar than um you know m- modern fruit that's been bred for for centuries to become sweeter and juicier, w- w- you know, whatever. Um you know, like it's a valuable signal because that is there's like that's a good source of energy. And, you know, eating honey full of like bee larva and stuff is actually like super <laughs> nutritious, which is, you know, what like hunter gatherers do when they eat honey. Sure. It's full of like bee larva and eggs and stuff. It's not just sugar. But but the, the, the point is that there's like limited access to those things as well. Mm-hmm. So right. it's hard for the craving to go wrong. Like you can't just walk in like I'm craving something sweet. You can't just walk into a store and eat 12 candy bars. I'm craving the fruit of knowledge. Mm. Maybe. So, so like, sorry, I, this is like getting very prelapsarian over here. But so I guess you know my point is just that like yeah, like those those cravings probably do have important information, but they it's just they don't um, they're less reliable in a, a quote unquote food environment that has a lot more danger and a, a lot more ways for things to go wrong than like when. Oh, you know, the, the, really the environment confused. that we're really best suited for. What's that? Yeah. Okay. Now I'm really confused because uh, this is just like we're off the beaten path here because I, I really want to understand. But like, didn't you also say a few episodes ago that like the Industrial Revolution is the best thing that happened to like quality of life of humans? 
Okay, so I, I probably did say that, and that's so, like a- agricultural. So here's the you idea: know, industrial, in, agricultural industry, industrial agriculture, whatever. But like now, you're saying that's bad. I so uh, uh, I'm well. So Sophie, I'm I'm capable of nuanced thought where things you contain multitudes <laughs> where something can can uh, you know have both tremendous upsides and real costs. Um, okay. Good point. I stand corrected. No, and and that's but, like that's off the you know the point is that I don't understand, so I'm trying to understand. Right. So uh, I mean, I I think I think it's it's both true that um that there's a lot of like like modern diseases of lifestyle are the results of uh, lifestyle changes that have happened in the last mostly two hundred years. Um, uh and and our consequence of the um industrial revolution but also you know being a subsistence farming peasant really sucks oh for real so, although that's very different from being a hunter gatherer right fact, yeah, yeah, like, yeah i mean there's this whole that- line of argumentation that that you know and i i don't i don't have the tools to judge whether or not it's true but there's you know definitely people who argue that average of quality of life for a hunter gatherer was way higher way higher yeah no i, I think most the people birth of agriculture yeah. was a f- huge calamity for the quote-unquote average person it allowed for there to be many many more people yeah but um, they were all slaves right yeah yeah, yeah. and it was it yeah. was great for like a select few and that didn't really change yeah. until the industrial revolution right right no i i would i would say that's accurate um from what i know having taught in ancient history a little bit but um but so okay this is the thing like how then are we supposed to so i guess my question that i like maybe you can answer just like how have you solved this for yourself because my sort of confusion is like i don't know how i'm supposed to know because again like i know what (laughs) makes me feel better but then the explanations for that seem totally bonkers like really dumb and then but same thing with allergies like i didn't have i really didn't have food allergies until my like late 20s and then i and then i developed some pretty serious ones although it's possible that i always had them but i wasn't eating those things and (laughs) then i started eating those things blah blah (laughs) but like everyone i talk to about food allergies it's very clear that no one has any idea what the how they work what the point of them is and how to solve them like at all um you know, don't eat the thing. Eat the thing. Eat the thing in moderation. Like, who? Like the this food allergy will disappear. The food allergy will get worse. The food allergy will kill you. You don't really have a food allergy. It's totally made mm-hmm. up. You know, like, um, and luckily for me, like the the allergies that I have are. I mean, I'm allergic to some tropical fruits, and I don't eat a lot of tropical fruits unless I'm like in the tropics. So right. it's fine. NBD. But like, yeah, yeah. But, but no, I, mean, I have a coworker yeah, like, whose but, son is is you know he was deadly allergic to peanuts, and right. you know that's a problem. But and then some people's peanut allergies just go away. Well, this she she's been doing this like special treatment. Like every few weeks, she takes him to this special clinic. Right, and, and he eats a peanut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's doing much better now. He's you know he's much sure much less reactive. Uh, but it's terrifying, right? Oh yeah, she was freaking it out about it. It must be totally terrifying totally to like, take your out. child to think. Yep. Yeah, and so um, but, I mean, food I allergies are weird. Is, it's it's all weird, and, and, and so, it's it's it's. I don't think anyone has a convincing explanation for. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there's an explanation out there, but I haven't heard a convincing explanation for why so many more people have food allergies yeah, now than yeah. thirty years ago. Right. I think that's really interesting. It's so interesting, and some of it I think is you know just hype or whatever. But uh, but a lot but of it's I, real. I, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, when I mean I for had, peanuts, when I, it's definitely real. Yeah, and when I had like kids would have been dropping left and right. If face was swelling and I had like blisters all over my arms, that was was a different time when my face swelled. Yeah, Um, I guess my face has swelled a lot. Like it's very clear that I wasn't like 
I wasn't like, I'm a special snowflake who ate too many mangoes. You know, it's you funny. Know? I was, like, I was having a real. conversation with a, a, a family member a little while ago who recently went gluten-free. And she's like, it's incredible. Like, my arthritis is better. My allergies are better. Like, like she's like, I, all these health cons, you know, all these ways that like her, her health mm-hmm, is better. And she mm-hmm. said that she, you know, I think at Thanksgiving she had stuffing a few days in a row and she's like, and it all came back like, like, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a, a strong tendency for people to like make jokes and make fun of people who are like, try to eat gluten free, who don't mm-hmm. have celiac disease because they're, you know, they're being quote unquote special snowflakes. Um, but man, it's a, it's a real thing. It can be. Yeah. I mean, I have, I think, I think it can be, but I also think the, the other problem is like, I know someone who has tried to be on a very strict diet to, um, alleviate a number of illnesses and like, it, it only kind of helps, yeah. you know, and she's going to keep doing it, but also like, it's not a miracle cure. She's not going to go off her medication. It only kind of helps. And like, that has to be okay too. Like, it can't be sort of like, well, you've obviously not cut out enough of the right thing because oh. you're like still sucking at the teat of mammon with your sodas or something, what? you know, like, you totally I don't know. Lost I, just, me there. I feel like it's like, it's very, it's like, it can be a very penalizing or like punitive sort of culture of like, well, you're obviously eating like trans fat so that means that like you're never going to be healed you know well, yeah maybe i worry I mean, about that i would put it this way though like like this the, the sicker you are the probably the more uh intense the intervention w- needs to be hmm. that could um, be. and so like for people who have like serious well like okay so here's an example oh, this is a, this is a good example so there's the, there's this doctor named terry walls who i think she's a neurologist who got multiple scler- sclerosis um and ended up really incapacitated. You know, multiple sclerosis is generally considered an un, uncurable, fatal disease that will cripple you and completely It's incapac- not fatal. Yeah. It's not. It? No, it's not. It's it not? is not. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a misconception. But incurable. And, you should have watched and, The West Wing, Amos. I'm not going to watch that show. <laughs> incurable and, and, like, completely debilitating. Yes. It's progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Um, and so she was in like a wheelchair at one or, or like a motorized wheelchair at some point. And then, you know, she got to thinking and, you know, ended up doing, uh, basically put together a dietary intervention for herself and, um, now like walks without assistance. Is she cured? Nope. But she like gets around and walks without assistance and, um, and it's, she's got to be super, super strict with it. Um, you know, if she deviates at all from it, she's going to end up, you know, having. Okay, but this attacks. makes it seem like and, you think that nutrition science is reliable. So, no, no, no. no. Here's. <clears throat> I'm I, sorry. I'm just so confused. So, okay. So, so how to put this? I think there's a, there's, um, there's lots of different nutrition sciences. Mm-hmm. And this, like this intervention that she put together, this was not anything that was recommended by the multiple sclerosis community or sci- like the people who actually specialize in multiple sclerosis or treat it. Like they didn't have any help for her. Like I think they prescribed some, um, you know, some immune suppressants and said, you know, best of luck, which I think is how it goes for for most people with multiple sclerosis. I mean, this was something, this was an intervention. I'm making a skeptical face, but okay. Well, I mean, like, what do you mean? Skeptical that that's all the help that people yeah. get? I mean, I don't yeah. think, like, I don't think the sort of normal treatments for multiple sclerosis, like, I think it's like an immune suppressant. And mm. I'm not sure that, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure that there's that much. I mean, I know there are medications that people 
give, but they're generally considered to be things that just slow the progression. Yeah. They don't do anything to reverse it. Okay. Um, as far as I know, again, could, could be wrong there, but. It, okay. But so what's the payoff of the story then? Well, so, th- so the payoff is that there is, there is like good nutritional science out there. It's just, it's not always incorporated or, or it's often not incorporated into um, the nutritional science community. So that's why there's like so much like fringe stuff going on when it comes to food, because there's a real need for it. Um, like, you know, the, I think the, the sort of like mainstream uh, nutrition communities have been advocating things that don't work for a lot of people for a mm-hmm. long time. Sure. Sure. And that's sort of crazy. Right, like we know diets are pretty stupid. Uh, you mean like, like, like a, a reduced calorie diet yeah. to lose weight. Yeah. 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 Lousy, lousy way to lose weight. Um, not, not effective. Um, and, and there are so many health conditions that can be improved by dietary changes. Again, it will always be improved. No, will they always be, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, in a dietary change, isn't necessarily going to fix all the problems, but, but there's a lot of people who could really benefit from dietary changes. Um, and, and, and for a lot of different reasons that I, I don't fully understand the, the, um, the sort of mainstream medical community has not has not been there to to take these up, and I think that's starting to change a little bit now. Um, like I, you know, I'm I'm I, I pay attention to this stuff, so I see like okay, like you know, I see articles in the newspapers like oh, scientists say that maybe salt in your diet isn't so bad after all. I'm like okay, great, thank you. Like there was never good evidence for salt being harmful for most people, but it's, you know, it's been a dietary recommendation for 30 years anyway. Um, so, um, where am I going with all of this? Well, I have, I have an insight, which I, which I wonder if I could try out on, Yeah, you, yeah. which is that it sounds like, and again, I, I don't know this to be true, but it sounds like a lot of, um, a lot of this kind of, a lot of these recommendations are, are public health yeah, 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 yeah. And so the problem is that potentially food as medicine, let's say, mm-hmm. right, like um is not one size fits all. So if what you're worried about is people with and again, I'm not a doc, I don't actually know these things. You can tell me I'm wrong. But like um people who have high blood pressure probably shouldn't eat a lot of salt. I think I think that's right. Um Probably. And so if what you're trying to do is figure out a way to generally protect the population from high blood pressure because you have some evidence that it's a problem for the community, then you may make Mm -hmm. that recommendation. And it might mean that, you know, for upwards of 50% of the population, they don't need to eat less salt, but it's not going to kill them to eat less salt either. So it's like you make, well, okay. But my point is these are community recommendations. No, I think, I think you're right. I think, I think the the sort of public health thinking has been a a big part of the the problem. But, but I'm not sure I'm willing to give up on that. Like, I, I mean, the, the, the neurologist with MS, like, you know, this is, this is the same story as like Steve Jobs in his garage inventing computers. Like it's great when smart people can cure themselves and, well, and make computers, but that's not how society works. No, but, like, but the point is that like if, if, um, mainstream, if the mainstream medical community is like more willing to look at quote unquote food as medicine, like other people could benefit from this, from this, um, like the evidence was all there for someone to put together and like, uh, 
there's like a protocol now and, and other people are doing this and benefiting from it. And, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like it was all there for someone to put together. I, know, but the, I saw Lorenzo's oil. I didn't. I don't. Oh, well, like, you know, there's this like degenerative, incurable neurological disease. And it turns out that if you just eat this oil, you'll be saved. Okay. And so this family makes this oil and they eat it and then the boy eats it and he's cured. Okay. Now everybody uses the oil and it's fine. But I mean, but, that's not like. Right. So I don't think it's got anything to do with Steve Jobs in the garage. I mean, she happened to be someone who who like had both the the motivation and the tools to sort of put all this together, right? Because she she was extremely motivated because she was very sick and and she was a neurologist who could, you know, like sure. think through all of this. But the 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 point is that there's like um yeah, there's there's a, a lifestyle inter like a powerful lifestyle intervention for MS that that you know, that was like totally off the off the radar for the MS community. And which like the MS community, I think like a lot of people spent a like like the or the, the 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 doctors spent a lot of time after that saying it was nonsense, and I think people are like starting to come around now. I don't know. It's yeah. Okay. So, but what if it had been nonsense? Well, that would have been a problem. Right. Right. I mean, <laughs> like, that's, I'm that's... not sure how to. I'm not sure how to answer. Well, like, because, yeah, if I it mean, didn't I work, that, that would have been bad. But 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 I think like when desperate people who are sick, you know, like someone tells them like if you put crystals on your head, you'll be cured, right? I mean, because your 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 explanation for why this is a mess is so much more generous than mine, which is sort of like you said, mainstream science hasn't or mainstream medicine hasn't sort of like looked into this enough and taken it seriously enough, and so on the fringes, people are sort of trying to fill in. But I mean, there's also like there's just been like quacks for ever who like sure. tell you to take this snake oil and you'll yeah. be better yeah, 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 and yeah. you know i feel like there's a fair amount of that now this conversation has turned into me arguing with you about why like <laughs> why like all of this is bullshit which i don't didn't wasn't my point i guess my point is i don't understand how i'm supposed to adjudicate so, so I would, <laughs> what things are like are totally bogus oh, and really what things good. are not you, you, you should go back and listen to um Season one, episode one of a, yeah, of a show called Tell Me Why you, I'm Wrong. When you were like, what if I'm going to become an anti-vaxxer because yeah. I just listen to crazies? Right. And, I, yeah. and I was like, your friends will tell you that you're fine. Right. <laughs> like, yep. Or not fine. Yeah, right, right. That was a good but, answer. But, but what, if, I don't what really... if you don't trust your friend's judgment when it comes to like what foods right. to eat? <laughs> I don't trust yours, clearly. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All that right. cream. Yeah, right. So 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 it's, it's a... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a real epistemological problem. Like how it how, is a real epistemological yeah. problem. And I used to be able to just be like, I'm craving beans or something, and now I'm like, I don't think that that even works you, anymore. Right. Well, and and if you have like specific medical problems that you're trying right. to address through diet, you could be craving something that that's very bad for me. Right. And well, well, I would put it this way: like you could be craving something that you have that your body has a real need for, or there's something in that food that your body has a real yeah, need for. So there right. is a reason you're craving it. Like that is important information, right. but also it's, it, there's something else in it that's your body's going to have a bad reaction to. Right. right and so right. it, you know, it takes some thought to figure out maybe what it is that you're actually craving, not the food, but like, what it is it, what is it about that food that you're craving right. and how else right. can you satisfy that without Absolutely. eating the thing that's going to make you sick? Yep. Yep. But so I, I really do S1 think food, I really do think food cravings have important information. I I okay. I'm I, not sure. I'm not sure I do. But I mean, but, I would say like okay. I think it's it's not always it's not always simple how to interpret them. But I do think they I think they contain information. Yeah. So okay, but go back to the thing of the epistemological crisis. Oh yeah. Uh, you know it's. <laughs> 
Rob Wolf, who's who's someone who I, I have deep ambivalent feelings about, but who I think is smart. I don't know who that is. He's a um how to describe Rob Wolf. So he he wrote he wrote a, a little book a while back called The Paleo Solution. Um so he's he's like a been a leader of the sort of like quote unquote paleo movement. Mm-hmm. Um he's a you know former researcher in biochemistry and like a a power lifter and and coach and dinosaur cowboy yeah yeah um you know he does work now with like a a a a clinic in reno that works that does like special interventions for their like police and firefighters um they do like screenings health screenings and interventions and um you know, he, he, he always would just say like, look, you know, I, I, this is what I think and why I think it. And, you know, if you don't believe it, that's fine. If, you know, if you're curious, try it for 30 days and see how you look, feel and perform. You know, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. If it does, you know, maybe there's something there. Okay. And, you know, that's not like the most satisfying answer, but, and it's, it doesn't necessarily solve the epistemological problem because when you're talking about um, you know, it, it, or, or I should say that there's, there's like, you end up with like, uh, these sort of, um, how to put it, uh, um, oh, I'm, I can't find my word. It's the one where fractal, these sort of fractal problems mm-hmm. where you can like, maybe, you know, you, maybe if you just go like 30 days without having any added sugar, maybe that's going to be a, uh, good thing that you're going to you're going to notice that in many ways you 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 feel better um and then like and then like okay well that seemed to work maybe i'll eliminate grains for a month and see how i feel and you might you might do that and and you might feel pretty good uh but that's not going to necessarily where am i going with this like it's it's not going to solve like if you have like a specific health condition it may not address that Right. And like feeling pretty good is not like the most specific, exact measure. It's of not specific. Health, right? You know, it's, like, it's important. I felt better. Right. It's, sure. It's important. It's again, but it's, it's good information. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. And, and, and like sort of the, the, the further you go with this stuff, you, you, you can be making progress while still also having health problems that are not being addressed. And, and it's, that doesn't necessarily mean that the the dietary change wasn't beneficial, but it could mean that it's just not solving all the problems and and you may need other sorts of interventions. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think there's sort of like separate issue, which, which you've mentioned a couple of times, which is like this, the, these dietary interventions seem to help, but the explanations don't make any sense. Yeah. It makes no sense. I feel that way about like when people start talking about like Ayurvedic stuff where they'd be like, Oh yeah, you have like, a cold energy so you need to eat these foods i'm like i don't know what any of that means like but that's like a full philosophical that's like a specific right i mean that comes out of a totally different tradition that is not well western medicine no it's not right? def- it's definitely not western medicine but the, the, the point is that like like people are like oh yeah i started eating according to ayurvedic principles and it really seemed to help me and i'm like I, that that's totally plausible to me like it's it's totally plausible that that worked out well for you i'm skeptical that the explanation uh, for why it was helpful is the one offered by the sure. Ayurvedic doctors or whatever. That's yeah, that's yeah. My, okay, that's my okay. Point. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Right. I don't know. Maybe Although, I'm wrong. Maybe the Ayurvedic people had it right all along. <laughs> I think if we lived in a world where we all embrace those principles, like sort of across the board, it would all make lots of sense. Maybe. Because it would be in harmony with everything else that we think we understand. Yeah, maybe. Right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe. That's my like weird cultural relativism yeah. coming in. But I mean, so this is really interesting. And um, what? so what's the solution like? How do we fix this? I mean, I think I – think, um, in a, in a way, you just need to be like results oriented, and like if it's working, it it works, and you kind of go with it. And don't worry too much about the explanation. Mm. And and but there's no scientist in the world who's going to be satisfied with that. No, it's not right? going to. Well, actually, no, no, no. that's not true. Well, no, I th- well, I think I mean because nobody knew how aspirin worked for a really long time. Right, and and I mean people obviously people weren't satisfied with it, and eventually they figured it out. Right? Did they figure it right. out? Readers, yeah. readers, listeners, let us know whether or not anyone knows how, <laughs> how does aspirin. As- works. Please tell us how does aspirin work. But but my you know uh, you, you know we're not scientists, um, so we don't we don't need we to. We are not. <laughs> we which should be clear. We have no idea. Should what we're be clear to anyone who's who's uh, listened to this episode or you know season season two's episode. Uh, we hate science. Yeah, no, we have no idea. Um, but uh, right, so I think our concerns are a little bit different from scientists. Scientists are trying to figure out like, okay, how does food affect the body, and we're trying to figure out what should we eat. And those yeah. those questions are a little bit different. I think that's that's really true, and I'm still confused, and I still want to talk more about this. But we are sort of over time, so yeah, we should stop. We should probably there. stop. And I, you know, it sounds like I, I think we should talk about your your eating offline at some point because it, it sounds like, which I guess we have, but maybe we should talk yeah, about it have. again. Yeah. Um. Oh man, I feel like I have so much more to say about that, but um, I, <laughs> all of that. But we'll, I guess, we'll just have to stop there. We'll get some coffee sometime. Okay. Yeah. Maybe uh, you'll make it because I'm still like, I still want to know about this amazing coffee that is now your hobby. Oh, yeah. I just drank some. It was good. I, that's what I hear every time. Yep. Have I ever been able to try it myself? No. Hmm. We'll have to, yeah, you were, last time you were over was the evening, so it didn't make it was. sense. There was no coffee. Yeah. Uh, hey, so H.P. Lovecraft and Salman Rushdie are, we think, up next. Yeah. If not, yeah. then there'll be the one Two after that. So, yeah. Yeah. Read up. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Amos Worth. Uh, you can check out our website, tmwiw.net. Uh, there's a contact form on that website, so you can send us an email. Um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, TMWIW Podcast. I think that's In it. In our last episode, Movies versus TV, we want to know if you, you know, which one of us do you think is right? Oh yeah. So yeah, if you have yeah, a strong yeah. opinion, you know, write in or, oh. or, or tell us, right? Cause I was... totally, I totally had a thought about that. Oh, so I went to, oh, I okay. went to see the new Star Wars movie. Me too. Oh, what'd you? Real quick, what'd you think? Good or bad? I really liked it. I loved it. Loved, Me too. Loved, okay, loved yay! It. We agree. Loved we should it. do an episode about this. So just real quick, I'm gonna say that that our, I it it hit me that our differing. Uh, Feelings about Force Awakens may be analogous to our discussion about movies versus TV. Ooh, Whereas well, we should probably come back to this. I I was looking for a coherent right? story. You wanted to hang out with some like friendly, cool characters for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we should probably talk about the Last Jedi. Okay, because oh, there's we a both lot really to talk about, in that movie. and there's a lot to talk about, and Holy. maybe that's going to be our bonus or something, right? That, I'd be down with that. There's also so much to there's talk another about. movie that we both want, wanted to see, which you probably have already seen. Is it is it there yet? The Weight of Water. 
I haven't seen it yet. The Shape of Water. Okay. I haven't seen the it yet. The Shape of Water. Well, we both want to see it, so yeah. we might want to talk about that sometime. Okay. So, maybe so we'll, we'll come back together. to movies and all kind. Maybe we will, and this should be really fun. So, yeah. great. Um, great, 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 we'll great. have more episodes sometime, yeah. and we'll talk about other things, and it'll be fun. And I feel like I've just paraphrased. <laughs> I've just paraphrased Fred Rogers. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Well, thanks for be being our neighbors. When the day is new, and I'll have more ideas for you. <laughs> I love him. Bye, neighbors. <laughs> Bye, neighbors. <laughs>